You're listening to a CNA podcast. Doesn't hearing that make you feel like you're on vacation? Picture crystal clear waters, pristine beaches, small town charm. No shortage of any of those things in the Pacific Islands. You just heard some home video taken by my colleague, editor Jeremy Coe. He burned off some leave recently and toured the region, a region that's been getting a lot of attention lately. In case you haven't noticed, there's a giant power contest for these tiny countries. China and the U.S. have been courting them hard. So what do they have to gain and lose in their newly influential position? Jeremy joins me to talk about that. Hi, Jeremy. Good to see you. Hi, Teresa. If we look at a map, these small islands dot the ocean between the Philippines and Hawaii. They seem to be idyllic vacation spots. What were your first impressions when you landed? Well, to be very honest, I mean, you think of the Pacific Islands, you think of tropical islands and all that. But uh, it was pretty chilly when I was there uh, because of the El Nino effect and everything. In July, the Tonga Meteorological Services recorded a low of 9.3 degrees Celsius in Tonga. So that's incredible. I mean, you had all the beautiful beaches, all the waters, pristine waters and all that. And I can't really get in the water because it was icy. Like I dipped my foot in, I was like, oh, it's freezing, okay. So I I went on a bit of snorkeling and all that. That was all in wetsuits. So I I really didn't expect Tonga to be so cold, Fiji as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, People were wearing jackets and scarves and all that. But beyond that, the people were very friendly. You know, sometimes when you travel, strangers come up to you, you feel like, hey, what? do you want from me stuff like that but in Tonga and in Tuvalu less so in Fiji you have complete strangers coming up to you you know chatting with you how's your day what you're trying to do stuff like that they weren't after your money they were just initially I I thought that I was like okay what do you want from me you know all my defenses were up and everything but uh, end of the day after the conversation they just walked away so it was like they're just interested to find out why I'm there you know Mm. in many cases I'm the first Singaporean they've seen in those parts of the world Um, so yeah I mean I was pleasantly surprised by that you know there's that balance between trying to meet people and also you know being very careful and all that so that's a balance that that's really hard to to gauge as well but Tonga specifically you know, there are signs it's not really recovered from the volcanic eruption as well as the tsunami last year. Uh, the western coast of the main island, all the resorts are wiped out. In some cases, you can see like the concrete floor and all that, but that's about it. All the resorts are gone. Mm. Yeah. So walking the streets, you obviously talk to locals. Did you get a sense of this tug of war for influence by Beijing and Washington? Did locals seem to be aware of it? I think they're aware of it, certainly, because there's been a lot of coverage and there's been a lot of movements from the US as well as China in the past few months specifically. But I don't think that's something that's foremost on their minds. I mean, you you think about these Pacific islands, they're very far from the rest of the world, they're very remote, but they are of very strategic importance, particularly during World War II as well. In fact, there are lots of World War II wrecks over all these islands. That's a sign of how important these islands islands are and even so today because it's a region that's very critical to global shipping channels as well as the ocean economy and if touch wood if there are any conflicts in the Indo-Pacific in the future these are regions uh, very 
key outposts where countries would want to, you know, dock their ships mm -hmm. as well as to fuel their ships as well. And more than that, these countries, even though they're all very tiny islands, they have very vast economic zones, which is the ocean around the islands. So these are islands that could make them very, in a way, critical partners as countries like the US, China, or even Australia, New Zealand, or other parts of the world, they try to look for deep sea fishing, minerals, food as well, and so on. But if you look at all these islands, traditionally, their main allies of the US as well as its partners, including Australia and New Zealand because of how close it is to these countries. And only four of these countries, uh, Tuvalu among them, currently recognize Taiwan over China. At the same time, we also see that Beijing has made a lot of investments in this region. There's a lot of China aid projects uh, going on as well. So in a way, China has used investments, a lot of money to lure these islands away from Taiwan. In the past, there were more of Taiwan's allies, but now there are only four. Palau, Tuvalu, Nauru, as well as the Marshall Islands. So seeing all these going on, Washington is also getting a bit worried. So they've also stepped up their investments and engagements with these islands. And a few weeks ago, the US Agency for International Development, the administrator of this agency visited the two biggest Pacific Island nations, Papua New Guinea and Fiji, and it also opened offices there for the very first time. Wow. You mentioned aid. It has been said that for these islands, trade and investment are more desirable than aid. Is Chinese money winning these islands over? Well, slowly but surely, I would say, because the Chinese yeah. presence there is huge. Like in Tonga, for instance, you look at the supermarkets, the provision shops, almost all of them are Chinese-run. Oh. It's really surprising. Tuvalu recognizes Taiwan, but I saw lots of Chinese there as well. I spoke to some of them. So they are from China, not from Taiwan. They live there? So they live there. Oh. So they run the restaurants. There are lots of Chinese restaurants over there. Okay, maybe restaurants is not the right word. Eateries, <laughs> they are not on that level. Supermarkets as well as provision shops, all Chinese run. So it's really surprising. I saw reports saying that more than 90% of the more than 400 supermarkets and shops in Tonga are run by the Chinese. Hmm. So I spoke with some people over there. In some ways, it's a national security threat, right? I mean, if something were to happen, what's going to happen? If the Chinese run off, you would have no provision shops or supermarkets at all. So that's something that's... To me, it sounds a little concerning, but maybe the Tongans are not so concerned about that. But there is a bit of tensions between the locals as well as Chinese. In 2006, I believe, there were riots in the Tongan capital, Nuku'alofa, and the Chinese businesses were targeted. And I spoke with some Tongans. They said that there is still a bit of tension between the, the locals and the Chinese because they view the Chinese as having come in, you know, swooped in and took, taken over lots of these businesses, very important businesses as well. So seeing all that, the U.S. has also stepped up its engagements there. Just recently, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, pledged to step up support for Pacific nations during a, a visit to Tonga. Just a few months ago, the U.S. opened an embassy over there. So he warned about the perils of predatory Chinese investments, even as he uh, dedicated the new embassy over there. And not just him, lots of officials are fanning out across the region as well in a bid to counter Chinese actions there. When it comes to the American playbook, though, this region has seen promises of U.S. engagement before. In fact, including when Mr. Biden was vice president. Nothing really came of that, though. Do you think that's the case again today? Well, uh, what's really different then was that uh, after the Cold War, the U.S. basically neglected the region. So those regions were in Australia and New Zealand's backyard, right? So most of the investments, the aid came from Australia and as well as New Zealand. And more recently, we saw a lot of Chinese investments as well. But 
the question now is the US is coming in a big way, but is it too late to the game? Mm-hmm. Because Chinese have already invested a lot there, lots of Chinese <laughs> aid projects, even further afield, like in Timor Leste, where I was uh, not too long ago, there were China aid projects as well, lots of Chinese over there. So that part of the Pacific has a huge Chinese presence. So clearly, China has had multi-year hit start. So whether Washington's actions there, will it be enough right now? That's a big question. Already you have seen some countries casting themselves in Beijing's camp, like the Solomon Islands, for instance. They have signed defense and policing pacts with uh, China over American objections. And also Fiji, the previous government agreed to law enforcement cooperation, with, which gives Chinese officials sweeping powers on the territory, even though the current government has vowed to tear up this agreement. But clearly you can see uh, some sort of tug and pull between the US and China that's happening over there as well. But on the other hand, on the flip side, on the more positive side for these countries, uh, because there's this geopolitical light that's shining on them right now, mm-hmm. they're trying to balance ties between the US and China, obviously, and trying to get what they can from both nations and in many cases, that's aid, that's investments, that's infrastructure project. And Tonga, for instance, they're hoping for boosted cooperation with the US on improved coastal surveillance because the country faces a, a very a pretty big drug trafficking issue right now, an issue which Fiji also faces. Because these countries in the past, they used to be like a transit point between the US and Australia and New Zealand where drugs come through. So in the past, it was cocaine. So that was too expensive for these people to buy. But in recent years, that's become meth. Wow, that sounds like a topic for another podcast. I want to pick up on a point that you made saying China and the Solomon Islands signing a security agreement. Uh, That has actually caused concern about regional agreements being undermined. Is there strength in numbers, Jeremy? Are these nations in the Pacific working together to achieve more negotiating power? Or is there a wedge coming between them? I mean, as you've seen in other parts of the world, in in ASEAN, for instance, countries usually act in their own self-interest. I mean, of course, there's strength in numbers. And these countries, they are small, remote islands. They know that there is strength in numbers. But every country, at the end of the day, is working in its own best interest. Like Solomon Islands, for instance, signing the security pact with Beijing because that's in their own interest, getting aid, investments, and so on. But having said that, in August, four Pacific Island leaders arrived in Vanuatu to consider declaring a neutral position in the Pacific amid this contest between the US and China as well. These countries are Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Fiji, New Caledonia, which is administered by France, as well as Vanuatu as well. And after the meeting, the Vanuatu Deputy Prime Minister said the leaders would consider declaring a region of peace and neutrality. But how would that work? Well, clearly there's a tug of war that's happening over there and it's only these four countries that are involved in this pact. So clearly we're going to see a lot of movements in the Pacific Islands over the coming years as well. That's become a new region that's been contested by the major powers of the world. Yeah, clearly deeper relations with these countries is the goal. But do the Pacific Islands really know what they're getting themselves into? We'll get Jeremy's take after this. Hello everyone, my name is Crispina. And I'm Adrian. And we're the hosts of a podcast called Work It. 
If you've never heard of it, well, it's a good time to tap in. In the last 20 episodes, we've discussed topics like how to negotiate for a salary increase or how to get along with younger colleagues who have different values from you, which incidentally is our top performing episode. If work consumes your life and you want some perspective on issues like management, stress, even office romance, then this podcast should be on your list. A new episode drops every Monday. Catch us on the CNA app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Jeremy, some analysts have said these Pacific Island nations are nothing more than pawns in a geopolitical rivalry, that there is a patronizing nuance to this narrative, and that these countries really don't actually know what they're doing, what they're getting themselves into. What do you think? Well, there is certainly that school of thought as well, but that's the other, that because these Pacific Islands are very small, they're very vulnerable as well in many cases, climate change, etc., etc. Because of that, they pursue a very non-aligned foreign policy stance, which means they engage with all large countries and to, at the same time, you know, to pursue their self-interest as well. So... One view is that because of this US-China rivalry that's going on, these countries in the Pacific are also using this attention to pursue their, their own self-interest as well as to attract more resources. And because of that, there are also more potential partners who are lining up with promises to give more choices, more money, basically. Mm -hmm. So that's something that will benefit uh, them as well. Because if you look at Suva, for instance, the capital of Fiji, China renovated the civic centre. They also built a $6 million hospital as well as two major bridges in the capital. So these are sorely needed infrastructure projects that by themselves, these countries might not be able to afford. So you know, in some ways, it's enhanced the livelihood of the locals as well. And beyond all these infrastructure projects, you have to ask yourself, what do the big powers really want from them? One is their geopolitical positions as well. And also because even though these are very small countries, they still have a vote in the United Nations. Mm -hmm. So if you pull them along to your side, they might vote along with you as well, which is why the U.S., in some ways, some analysts have said that the U.S. was caught by surprise over Chinese investments in this region, and now they're trying to play catch-up. So now they're going in in a big way, officials flying there all the time, Secretary of State Blinken as well. But is it enough? Because even though they are pursuing their own security agreements alongside close ally Australia as well, but the Chinese in particular have been there for quite a long time. Will it be enough to, you know, replicate or even to replace the Chinese? I'm not so sure. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of catching up to do for Washington. Uh, we're talking about the US and China, but other countries too, like India, Indonesia, South Korea, they're also vying for a foothold in the name of their own national interests, aren't they? Certainly. I mean, in May, South Korea's president uh, hosted the first ever Korea Pacific Islands Summit in Seoul. And also in May, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi visited Papua New Guinea. And in late July, you saw French President Macron visiting New Caledonia, which is a French territory in the South Pacific, as well as Vanuatu. So clearly, it's not just the US and China who are eyeing this region, because this region has a lot of resources, especially in increasingly resource-scarce world. You want, you want to look at fishing and all that. These countries have huge territorial regions as well, which you can, in a way, exploit. So all these countries are looking at these regions as well, uh, even Indonesia to some extent. In some ways, it gives these islands more options because beyond choosing between the US and China, they now have maybe other countries like South Korea, Japan, and India in some ways. 
will it work out to everyone's benefits? I think that's something that uh, the political leaders will have to be very aware of to avoid being pawns in the conflict. Mm-hmm. But where does all of this leave Australia? Australia is a country by virtue of geography, right, among other things, that has had a massive influence over the Pacific Islands for decades. Certainly. I mean, because if you look at getting to the Pacific from our region anyway, the easiest point of entry would be from Australia or New Zealand because they are close neighbours. Mm-hmm. And according to a recent Lowy Institute of Research, China's growing Pacific footprint is looming large on Australian minds and is shaping citizen attitudes. In fact, 84% of the respondents of this uh, survey favour using aid to counter Beijing's activities in the region. And on its own, the Albanese uh, government has also shown a very strong commitment to working with the Pacific family on their priorities, including like climate change as well as the recovery from COVID-19. But instead of just giving out money like what China is doing, the Australian government is pursuing what it calls a model of public-private partnerships, which is a sort of a, a fund that's set to encourage businesses to invest in the region. And the foreign minister said that this framework will rebuild and revitalize Australia's development program to ensure a better future for the Indo-Pacific. But again, is it too little too late? Um, mm-hmm. That's something we'll have to see over the coming years. And we definitely have to talk about climate change. It's widely recognized that these countries are right on the front line. uh, And for them, climate change is the greatest security threat that they face. There's a sobering photo you took, Jeremy, that I saw where you're standing on a tiny strip of land separating the central lagoon in Tuvalu from the waters of the Pacific. How much is this region able to leverage or capitalize on their strategic importance to get the world to help them? Well, Teresa, in fact, that was the photo. I mean, not of mine. I've seen similar pictures that prompted me to visit Tuvalu. Oh, I saw like, wow, this is amazing. This country is getting submerged, you know, and Mm. there's only a very tiny strip of land that's separating the lagoon from the Pacific Ocean. In fact, you can walk across in the narrowest part. It's just a tiny road and Mm. that's it separating wow. the, the waters. And the three days I was there, it was raining every day. And after the rains, you can see how the floods, the, the roads were flooded. I mean, not everywhere, but there were, there were floods in pretty much a lot of places in Tuvalu. So this country is in extreme threat of uh, disappearing. In fact, it's expected to be one of the first countries in the world to be completely lost to climate change. And if the current rates of sea level rise continues as expected, some estimates suggest that half the land area of the capital will be flooded by tidal waters within three decades. Maybe not even three decades, because as I'm seeing right now, after the rain, you know, large parts of the capital are underwater. Hmm. And you see how narrow the strip of land is. You know, it doesn't take much. It doesn't stand it's a chance. It's very low-lying, yeah. correct. So if the waters just rise, that tiny strip of land that I was standing on will be submerged totally. And that country is super tiny. It's You can walk from end to end of the main island within, I would say, maybe three hours. It's just a couple of kilometers long. I think it's 12 kilometers, if I'm not wrong. That's the length. And the width, you can walk across in 15 minutes for the widest part of the island. So that's how big it is. So already you can see that the buildings are clustering to the center of the island as close as they can because the sites are being washed away. Oh In fact, goodness. as you you walk along, you see some houses that are abandoned because they have been lost to the flood waters, the sea waters, in fact. And in- interestingly, the cemeteries were along the beaches and because of the rising sea levels, you can see some tombs in houses as well. So that's how bad the situation is right now. 
If you recall, in 2021, the then foreign minister stood in the ocean to deliver a speech for yes. COP26, uh, mm-hmm. knee dip in water. Yes. Uh, so that's really how bad the situation is. But it's not just Tuvalu. Uh, many other low-lying Pacific islands also suffer from this threat of rising sea levels. According to a new UN report, countries like Kiribati, Tuvalu of course, and the Marshall Islands, they are super vulnerable to this rising sea level because the Pacific region is experiencing a approximate increase of 4 millimeters of sea level rise annually in certain regions, which is higher than the worldwide average. So, you know, if these countries were lost to the ocean, it's a big loss as well for not just the islanders themselves, but also for the whole world because you lose cultures, you lose histories as well, which is why Tuvalu has also uploaded itself on the metaverse, one of the first countries (laughs) in the world to do so. Oh, wow, I didn't know this. It's very interesting. I don't know how exactly it works, but basically they think pictures, videos recording oral histories, whatever, to upload them to the metaverse. So in the event that the country is lost forever, it's submerged underwater, future generations can still access all these islands, landmarks, heritage, etc. and so on. So do you think they're able to leverage their position and get help? There is some sort of land reclamation that's going on in Tuvalu. I was having a chat with some foreigners over there. Because Tuvalu recognizes Taiwan, right? We were discussing, we, we thought about if Tuvalu were to switch recognition to Beijing, maybe there'll be a lot more investment and aid coming in. But as it is right now, very limited land reclamation that's going on. Um, I don't know whether it would be enough to arrest the threat of the rising sea levels mm-hmm. because it's a very small area that's being reclaimed right now. So can they move everyone to that island? And also they have to build it, the, the island high enough to counter the threat of rising sea levels as well. So in some cases it might be too late, uh, especially for, for the smaller atolls around the, the region as well. Because the focus, the main attention will be on the major cities. What about the smaller ones? The ones with less villages and so on. I mean, um, the more pessimistic side of me feels that these islands probably are gone forever. Well, likely these islands will remain in focus in the years to come, whether it be for climate or geopolitical reasons. Thanks so much, Jeremy. You know, I've often joked about how you're such a world traveler and someday I really want to dedicate a podcast to your travels. And I'm so glad we got to do this, (laughs) especially with your insights. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. The TV version of CNA Correspondent airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Catch up with them anytime on cna.asia. The team behind this episode is Saya Wynn, Clara Ong, Crispina Robert, and me, Teresa Tang. Until next time.